0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is a story of a group of American fighter pilots who battled the Japanese in the skies over Burma and China between 1937 and 1945, earning a reputation for courage and determination that will last forever in the annals of World War II history. They came from all branches of the American military to fight originally as mercenaries on behalf of a beleaguered Chinese nation, and were led by a man who couldn't take no for an answer, Claire Lee Chenault. With his leadership, they racked up some of the most impressive air victories in war history against an air power that was considered to be the most advanced of its time. They became known for the markings on their planes, which resembled the teeth and eyes of a tiger shark. Markings the Japanese pilots came to know and fear. They were called the Flying Tigers. For America, after the devastating Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and the news of the surrender of American and British forces in the Philippines, and the atrocities that followed, there was very little good news coming back to kindle the American spirit. But the success of the Flying Tigers against Japanese pilots who had rained destruction down upon our Navy was pivotal in restoring American morale in those early months of American involvement in the war, which now had to fight evil on two fronts, one against the Nazis in Europe and North Africa, and one against the Japanese in the Pacific and Asiatic theaters.
1: First pictures of the famous Yankee Flying Tigers in China. For many months, their bullets held open the Burma Road beating a deadly tattoo upon the plains of Japan's Air Force. Former Army, Navy, Marine officers, transport pilots, they're the last of the world's soldiers of fortune. Today, they're a part of America's flying forces fighting the Battle of China. Volunteering before the United States entered the war, these amazing young men have astounded the world with their deeds of heroism and daring. Their leader, 50-year-old General Claire Chennault, for five years advisor to the Chinese Air Force. His knowledge of Japanese aerial tactics, he passed along to his American volunteers. Taking off from airfields, literally paved by hand, the Tigers score for their first 90 days of fighting, 470 Jap planes for 15 of the volunteers. 50 grinning Tiger Shark planes, wired together with spare parts from 50 more, were all they had to start with. Fighting in teams of two, they concentrate their firepower. One reason for their amazing success against seemingly impossible odds.
0: Their story takes place on the other side of the world, in China, during a time 83 years ago when China was a sleeping giant that hadn't yet begun to rise on the world stage. And the winds of war which had avoided it in the past were now burning hot on her eastern border where her coastline and the city of Shanghai meets the East China Sea and look eastward toward the tiny island of Japan. In 1937, Japan might have been tiny, but her emperor's dreams of building wealth by conquering China and planting her rising sun flag throughout a wide expanse of the Pacific Ocean were real. And while her diplomats tended to friendly business with world powers under the banner of peace and prosperity, her military strength had been building for years secretly, Building airstrips throughout the Pacific, fortifying islands with airstrips, with concrete bunkers and tunnels, building warships and fighter planes, seeking an unholy alliance with Nazi Germany, planning surprise attacks on the American Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, in the Philippines, Burma, Australia and New Guinea, Singapore and the Dutch East Indies, and planting a network of spies throughout half the globe to illustrate masked Japanese aggression in the years before Pearl Harbor, when Amelia Earhart and co-pilot Fred Noonan disappeared on their flight across the Pacific in July of that year, 1937. Many researchers, including this host, strongly believe it was the Japanese who found them on Mili Atoll in the Marshall Islands, and, having successfully prevented the U.S. search boats or planes to cover that area, which was now showing many new Japanese airstrips and fortifications, in violation of their Pacific agreement, picked them up, transferred them to Saipan, and eventually executed Fred and Amelia, while all the while telling the free world that they had searched everywhere, but saw no sign of them. In history class, we're taught that World War II began with Germany attacking Poland in September of 1939. But it began much earlier, in 1937, with the First Holocaust, The Rape of Nanking, the attempted genocide of the capital of China by the Japanese Imperial Army. I'm going to set the stage for the situation that existed in China in 1937 and build the case as to why China desperately needed to defend its skies to stall the Japanese attempt to crush its people and steal their country's resources. All of which prompted the formation of the AVG, the All Volunteer Group which was the initial formation of the Flying Tigers. The war really began with the Japanese invasion of Shanghai, China, in August of 1937. This initial onslaught was done without warning or provocation as the beginning of an effort by Japan to conquer the much larger China, to steal its mineral possessions, rob its wealth, and subjugate its people. Shanghai, located on the coast was to come first, and it was bloody, hand-to-hand combat, and that was only decided in Japan's favor thanks to their naval power, which participated in a naval bombardment that decimated Shanghai. Fifty years later, Shanghai would rise like the phoenix, recreating itself into one of the greatest cities in the world, and leading China toward a more open economy and future. But in 1937, it was hell on earth, and the start of World War II. The leader of China, Chiang Kai-shek, knew that when Shanghai fell, then Nanking, the capital city, just inland, would come next. But the Chinese army would be obliterated by the much more powerful Japanese imperial army. So he removed his army from Nanking, saving them to fight another day, and hoping that international diplomacy would prevent the Japanese from destroying the city and its people. But history teaches us words, laws, Morality, social justice, and hashtag-style positive thoughts don't protect people from pure evil. Superiority in weapons and men on land, planes in the sky, and ships on the sea do. The Japanese troops, having brought Shanghai to its knees and now thirsting for blood, began to move en masse toward helpless Nanking, even then a city of nearly a million people killing and raping every man, woman, and child on the way until they reached that capital city in December of 1937. It took them six weeks, but they managed to kill between 50,000 and 300,000 men, women, and children there, according to most accounts. Much evidence was destroyed by the Japanese in 1945, but pictures still exist, veterans' accounts still exist, and many of the people of China will never forgive. Today, much of Japan denies what is known to historians as the rape of Nanking, unwilling to look at its bloody past and too proud of their culture and heritage to accept the same shame for its butchery as Germany has done. But it happened, and it doesn't take much digging to find the photographs of thousands of bodies and Japanese headlines like this one from that time describing the killing as one would announce a baseball game. According to one Japanese journalist embedded with Imperial forces at the time, quote, The reason that the 10th Army is advancing to Nanking quite rapidly is due to the tacit consent among the officers and men that they could loot and rape as they wished. Novelist Tatsuzo Ishikawa vividly described how the 16th Division of the Shanghai Expeditionary Force committed atrocities on the march between Shanghai and Nanking in his novel, Ikitiru Heitai, Living Soldiers which was based on interviews that Ishikawa conducted with troops in Nanking in January of 1938. Perhaps the most notorious atrocity, and there were thousands, was a killing contest between two Japanese officers, as reported in the Toko Nichi Nichi Shimbun and the English-language Japan Advisor. The contest, a race between the two officers to see which could kill a hundred people first using only a sword, was covered much like a sporting event with regular updates on the score over a series of days. Of course, the men they killed had their hands tied behind their backs and couldn't fight back, but no matter, this was sport. Of course, in Japan, the veracity of the newspaper article about the contest was the subject of ferocious debate for several decades, starting in 1967, as no one in Japan wanted to believe that their people had done it. And that continues today. Although the Japanese government has admitted to the killing of a large number of non-combatants, looting, and sporadic violence committed by the Imperial Japanese Army after the fall of Nanking, and Japanese veterans who served there have confirmed that an actual massacre of huge proportions took place, a small but vocal minority within both the Japanese government and society have argued that the death toll was military in nature and that no such crimes ever occurred. Denial of the massacre and revisionist accounts of the killings have become a staple of Japanese nationalism. In Japan, public opinion of the massacre varies, but few deny outright that the event occurred. After losing the Battle of Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek knew that the fall of Nanjing was just a matter of time. He and his staff realized that they could not risk the annihilation of their elite troops in a symbolic but hopeless defense of the capital to preserve the army for future battles, most of it was withdrawn. Shang's strategy was to follow the suggestion of his German advisors to draw the Japanese army deep into China and use China's vast territory as a defensive strength. Xiang planned to fight a protracted war of attrition to wear down the Japanese in the hinterland of China. On the coast, Japanese naval superiority was supreme. They had been scrapping metal churches and structures for two years to build a powerful navy. In the air, nothing could match the speed and agility of the Japanese Zero, built by Mitsubishi. And whoever owned the skies over mainland China would win the war. In the 1930s, Claire Lee Chenault was working for the U.S. Air Corps as an acrobatic flyer and instructor, having put in 10 years by 1937. When he discovered an opportunity to lead air forces in China for Chiang Kai-shek, he resigned his position in the U.S. to become a colonel in the Chinese Air Force, believing that China's war with Japan was also America's and that we would be fighting Japan in the near future. Within months, Germany attacked Europe and England was caught up in a war for her survival. For nearly three years, Chenault directed Chinese air forces and earned a reputation as a good leader and ace pilot, but he found he was fighting an uphill battle with planes and newly trained pilots that couldn't match Japanese superiority in the air. In 1940, he traveled back to America to try to enlist aid in the form of planes and pilots, but ran into one stumbling block after another mostly due to the fact that American attention was focused on helping England and its European allies to defend themselves against the Nazi onslaught. No one really thought Japan was a threat. Chenault went to the U.S. War Department and told them about the new Japanese Zero and its capabilities, with a top-level speed of 322 miles per hour and a range of 1,100 miles, carrying a cannon and four machine guns, clearly superior to anything we had in the air at that time. The war department told him he was making all this up and dismissed him. Chenault went further and told him that he knew how to beat them if he could be supplied with P-40s and pilots. They basically told him to quit repping for China and get lost. China and Japan were not their problem at that time. They called him a prima donna behind his back and said that long-range bombers would win this war, not fighter planes. Chenault got angry, went to the press, filled them in on how lacking our planes were in comparison to the Japanese, and the doors to power closed right behind Chenault with a loud slam. But he still didn't quit. Finally, he got the ears of Frank Knox, Secretary of the Navy, and Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of the Treasury. They took the request to FDR. Chenault also got through to a well-connected lawyer called Tommy Corcoran, known then around Washington, D.C., as Tommy the Cork. He also had FDR's ear, as he had been working undercover for the U.S. with the Chinese resistance. Corcoran questioned Chenault carefully on a number of details regarding how he would fight an air campaign if he were to get men in planes. And Chenault explained how he would basically set up a guerrilla campaign using multiple landing strips and Chinese spotters which would set up a warning system for him and U.S. P-40 planes flown by pilots who were specially trained by him. Corcoran countered him, having already been told of the advantages that the Japanese Zero had over our P-40. And that's when Chenault broke out his plan. He explained that he had studied the capabilities of the Zero as he had fought them. He pointed out that the designers had sacrificed some capabilities to attain others on the Zeros. He had figured out how to outlast and outgun the Zeros, but the pilots would have to be retrained his way. Chennault was convincing. He said, Get me the right men with the right training, and we can beat the Japs at their own game. Using an early warning system, using mountain spotters that let Chennault know where the Japs were, and what path they were taking, he could catch them when they were low on fuel, and be at a higher altitude, from which they could dive on the Zeros, taking away the Zeros' advantage at speed he would train his pilots to avoid the long turn that they were currently employing during their dogfights, a turn which opened them up to the guns of the Zeros, and instead, if they missed on the first dive, head straight back up in a gas-expending rise, the P-40s working with full tanks, the Zeros having expended a good portion of theirs by the time they arrived at the ambush point. It was brilliant, and Corcoran was convinced. He added his plea for planes and men to FDR, and in January of 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt authorized the formation of a group of American fighter pilots using American-built planes, and called them the AVG, or All-Volunteer Group. Chenault was ecstatic, but part of his job was to find the planes. He went to the Curtis Wright factory in Buffalo, New York, and learned that a group of P-40B tomahawks were just rolling off the assembly lines, scheduled to go to England. With FDR's help, the British were persuaded to take a different model that would help them in their fight against the German Luftwaffe, and Chenault had his first group of planes. Now Chenault had to find pilots, but he had to get past a strong adversary to do it, in the form of General Hap Arnold, the chief of the U.S. Air Corps, who was violently against the idea. He swore he wouldn't send a single pilot to any other country without putting up a fight. Rear Admiral Jack Towers, chief of the Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics, backed Hep arnold That fight lasted for months. The U.S. needed its pilots. Roosevelt was getting pulled in all directions. How would America react to its pilots acting as mercenaries, fighting for another country that had not been declared an ally? Finally, FDR opened the door for Chenault. On April 15, 1941, he signed an unpublicized executive order authorizing reserve officers and enlisted men to resign from the Army Air Corps and Naval and Marine Services so they could join Chenault's AVG unit if they wanted to. It would all be handled in secret since the U.S. was not yet at war with Japan. A retired naval commander named Rutledge Irving was signed by Chennault to recruit at some big bases. As soon as Irving arrived at the Naval Air Station at Norfolk, Virginia, he sought out Captain Gus Wildhelm, a flight instructor. While the two were discussing how to find pilots, two young ensigns approached them. One was six-foot-three, slender, walking with a swaying roll. This was David Lee Hill, called Tex by all who knew him.
2: Ah. I'd always uh, wanted to get back to the Far East, and uh, I was born in Korea. My father was a missionary there, and I heard him talk about uh, Korea and uh, talk about the Japanese. You know, he had a lot. Of, he had a real problem with the Japanese-occupied Korea at that time when I was born. And uh, so I'd always wanted to get back over there. And uh, so I uh, actually. When I was in the Navy, I put in for a transfer to the, to the Houston, which was a cruiser that was over there. And I'm glad it didn't go through because uh, it was sunk. <laughs> Trained in Burma and, uh, of course, when we went uh, moved from uh, Burma into, into China, it was very primitive. You know, they're living the way they did 5,000 years ago. You know, people still binding feet and uh, oh, very few vehicles, mostly ox carts. And, and of course I saw it when we landed, <clears throat> when we came in there. Uh, we got word that the Japs had just bombed Kunming. So uh, the old man uh, moved two squadrons up there. Well, this is when I first understood what war is all about because Uh, The Japanese had come in and had bombed right into the city. And uh, there were many, many people dead, you know, civilians. I'd say maybe a couple of hundred, you know, kids with legs blown off and arms blown off. And and, uh, so
0: that's when I really realized what the war is all about. The other ensign was Ed Rector, five inches shorter than Hill, who had played football at college in North Carolina. Both were pilots in the bombing force squadron and had come off the USS Ranger.
3: Yeah, we called him the old man. Not to his face and not, but not out of any kind of disrespect, actually kind of out of reverence, because he was an old man at the time. But yeah, he he liked to pitch the ball games and they liked to let him win. But he had, uh, Chenault had fragile health. Yeah, he was uh, of course he smoked too much and he died of lung cancer, but he was very fragile at times and he had pneumonia a couple of times when we were there. and he spent a fair amount of time in the hospital and then we didn't see a lot of them because he spent a lot of time up in Chungming on the political side of it meeting with the Generalissimo and the madam but uh, I don't know of anybody out there who didn't like the old man and I think because he was a had been a school teacher uh, he could handle these immature people you know myself excluded of course but uh, and no matter what Problem you had, he'd work an answer out for you. We had a man who went down there, who was a Marine captain, and after the first couple of live bullets started flying around, he went and told the old man he didn't want to fly combat. So the old man gave him a job on the staff. We had another pilot who, when a couple of guys got killed in training, said he didn't want to fly combat. The old man gave him a job. He said he didn't want to go home, but he didn't want to fly combat. And so the old man gave him a job as an operations officer, you know. Uh, so uh, he would always do anything that he could to try to give you an answer. You could go see him anytime you wanted. It was He was open to anybody that had a problem, and I think that was another thing that liked him. And he was a good leader. Everybody liked him. He had that feeling that most of the guys would just do about anything he asked.
0: Irvine took them to his office and pulled down a map showing the Burma Road, connecting the last lifeline to China, and said, Men, we're going to need help patrolling this road. Tex Hill looked at him and said, What's this all about? Irving answered, Chenault wants men to fight for China. Hill's eyes opened up. He'd been born in Korea, and Rector was just as eager, always having had an interest in the Far East. And he'd heard rumors about Chenault, good ones. Irving explained the pay. They would have to resign from the AAF. Pilots would be paid $600 a month, which was huge back then. Flight leaders $675 and squadron leaders $750. A bonus of $500 would be paid for each Jap airplane shot down. After their one-year contract expired, they could rejoin the Army Air Force. And Roosevelt had green-lighted it. Ed and Tex signed up, and a lot of men followed quickly. By July 11, 1941, 150 pilots and ground workers were sailing on a course that would take them from San Francisco to Honolulu to Java to Singapore to Rangoon, Burma. Within a week, life as they knew it would disappear as they were introduced to jungle heat, constant rain, rotted vegetation, mosquitoes, and a host of deadly critters carrying stings, bites, and all kinds of sickness. For that reason alone, They couldn't wait to get their planes in the air. Training began at Tango at 6 a.m. every morning with Chenault, who had earned the nickname Old Man, and Leatherface from their recruits, standing at a blackboard and outlining their responsibilities and the moves they would need to make to stay alive against more experienced pilots operating better, faster planes. They heard him say, "'You will face Japanese pilots who are superbly trained in mechanical flying,' They fly by the book, and these are the books they use. Study them, and always be one step ahead of the enemy. The Japanese, he explained, had courage and judgment, but lacked initiative. He said, bombers will hold their formations until they're shot down. Fighter planes will always use the same tired tricks again and again. You can count on it. Here's how you break up their formations, he explained. And with chalk, he outlined what was needed as a football coach would diagram plays. Then he told them what they would need to do in every situation, again and again, until he had drilled it into them.
2: i tell you, Tungu was a, a, a terrible climate, you know. Have the rice paddies and the insects were just... Uh, you can't believe how many insects... Matter of fact, they used to bring our meals in two plates. you would have one here with your food in and another plate over it. And then you'd have to... Uh, take that plate off and really start eating fast, you know, keep the insects off of it. And, of course, the only relief we had from the insects was at night when we get under the uh, uh, mosquito nets. As a matter of fact, we had a guy who's kind of interesting, uh, antidote. Uh, we called him Fearless Fred Hodges. Well, <clears throat> they found out that he was really f- frightened of any kind of insect. So once the guys found out about that, they made his life miserable. You know, he'd be asleep under the net, and they'd put some insects under that net, and then he'd come out of there just wide-eyed. You know, <laughs> well we, we didn't know. It's just typical uh, typical uh, jungle weather. You know, it's just really very humid and uh, hot and, and and humid, which is real bad. We'd work, uh, we'd get up very early in the morning to train, you know, about daylight, and we'd go through our training because the heat was just almost unbearable. And uh, we were about uh, eight miles away from the little town of Tungu. We were at this airport about eight miles away. And uh, so we didn't, and we had no, no transportation other than bicycles. We all bought bicycles, so we'd have to ride into town, you know, to to, uh, fool around or or whatever. But it was was very primitive. Yeah, well, the boat ride took its toll on us, really. But uh, it was, uh, well, you know, we were drinking a lot of whiskey. And uh, in in my ship, we had, uh, these were Dutch ships. And uh, in my ship, uh, we had about half missionaries and half uh, AVG people. And uh, they, (laughs) I don't know who converted who on the way over there, but the missionaries had a very fertile field to operate in to try to convert us.
0: He explained that the P-40 had a number of weak points. It was heavily armored, which was a good point, But that armor made it climb slowly, and it was sluggish in turns. But, he said, you can use that weight to your advantage. How? In dives. You can count on a higher top speed in a dive. And you have superior firepower. But the Jap fighters have a higher ceiling and better maneuverability. You can't dogfight them. Use your speed and diving power to make a pass, shoot, and break away. Run. We learned how to
4: do it correctly, and then we were pleased that our tactics had proven themselves effective. And we made sure that every fighter pilot who came into China after that knew how to employ those tactics. When we heard about uh, what was happening everywhere else, the Japanese were uh, uh, shooting down planes everywhere because the P-40s that were out in the Pacific, they were trying to turn, as I indicated earlier. So we said, well, my God, we learned how to do it correctly. And then we were pleased that our tactics had proven themselves effective, and we made sure that every fighter pilot who came into China after that knew how to employ those tactics against the Japanese for the rest of the war. VJ Day came. And uh, subsequent to that, in those years remaining of the war, destroyed 575 Japanese aircraft right up to the end of the war. And out of that, there were 53 fighter aces. And by the way, the 296 uh, AVG planes destroyed by the AVG, there were 16 fighter aces that emerged from that effort. 10 or more victories. I was present with Chenault. Remember, I stayed on. I was commander of the 76th uh, 76th Fighter Squadron, the 23rd group. I was in his office when his adjutant said, General, what are we going to call the 14th Air Force? Uh, and Chenault said, uh, "Call the, the the people, the pilots. And Chenault said, Well, the Chinese know us as the Flying Tigers. Uh, we've got it painted, uh, the shark's mouth, on the, uh, on the P-40s. Let's just continue uh, calling them the flying tigers. I heard those words from Chennault myself, and that is why the, uh, the continuation in the 14th Air Force uh, took, uh, uh, took up the name and, and to this day use it proudly.
0: This was an unconventional group of men and they liked to complain about their P-40 Tomahawks, still not sure if they trusted them against the Japanese. Between the accidents, the men leaving, and low morale, they weren't ready yet for fighting Zeros. Then, two things happened. The first, Joseph Alsop, a publicity guy and overall organizer, joined Chenault's team to provide management and was a huge help in getting parts, tires, and ammo. And two... The British Royal Air Force, known to us as the RAF, had been challenging Chenault's men to send up their best man for a mock dogfight. Eric Schilling, the ABG's recognized hottest pilot, took the challenge with his P-40 against the Brit pilot in his American-made Brewster Buffalo. The RAF man had shot down ten Nazi fighters in the Battle of Britain, and once they got in the air, he climbed right on Schilling's tail. But before he knew what had happened, he found himself being chased. To everyone's amazement, Schilling was outmaneuvering the RAF pilot. Other RAF pilots joined in to get Schilling. With the same moves, Schilling claimed mock kills on every one of them. Everyone who was there witnessed the show. Respect for the P-40 Tomahawks shut up like a hockey stick style climate change graph. They discovered one more thing that November of 1941. No matter how fast they dived, the wings would not shear off which was a huge threat in most styles of fighters which had to use controlled dives. Also that month, some of the men spotted a picture of a P-40 being used in the Africa campaign and saw they had shark's teeth painted along the edge of the engine. Some of Chenault's engineers wanted to double as artists and added a red tongue and a staring red eye behind the propeller, tiger shark style. The Flying Tigers had been born. One week later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and the war with Japan was officially on.
1: Flying Tigers, the famous American volunteer group, wing their way across China's time as volunteers. For eight months, these Chinese signs have been the only insignia of the most spectacular and efficient fighting force in aviation history. of their native land, the U.S. Air Force, they become regular officers with American flying forces fighting in China. A Jap flag for every plane shot down, 200 in less than four months. Leader of the Volunteers, Brigadier General Chenault, now promoted to command all American flying forces in China. Here he outlines the field of operations. Flags and souvenirs A grateful Chinese people pay simple tribute to the airmen who have done so much to clear the skies over their embattled land. Clearing the skies for much needed supplies, supplies which in turn are exchanged for the valuable raw products of China. Using no time, the new command plots the strategy of attack. By an elaborate far-flung system of Chinese listening posts, word is flashed, Japanese planes on the way, and the red ball goes up over the field. Signal for pilots to take to their ships. The Flying Tigers going into action for the first time in the uniforms of Uncle Sam. Newly assigned pilots go with the veterans. Schooled in the fighting tactics, Chennault has proven superior. Roaring aloft, they seek the enemy, their flying general still at the controls. The new American Air Force over China, carrying on the tradition of the famous Flying Tigers.
4: I was with Chenault when we got the word of Pearl Harbor. I was seated with him at breakfast. And I could see uh, when we got the news, a radio operator came into the dining room at 7.30 in the morning, and he was, uh, I could see a glint. You know, shout did not have eyes, uh, pupils like you and I. He had cold black pits for eyes, and I could see a glint of satisfaction when he said that, uh, well, the Japanese have uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. I could see just a glint of saying, well, we're at those so-and-sos now. We'll We're free to do anything we want.
0: The day after the devastating Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, December 8, 1941, the Philippines were attacked. Although MacArthur's forces there had been warned to be on alert and were in the sky patrolling starting that dawn, they all returned to Clark Field at the same time for lunch. As soon as the skies were clear, Japanese bombers and fighters filled the empty void. In a matter of minutes, half of MacArthur's bombers were flaming wrecks the P-40s that could get off the ground went up to fight bravely, but had no idea how to fight Zeros. When they turned, the Jap Zeros were right on their tails, ready to shoot them down. Although Chenault had explained to the War Department one year earlier how to beat them, their disrespect for him and his methods at the time was costing U.S. pilots their lives now. On December 8th, Thailand surrendered to the Japanese knowing they had no chance of defending their country. And at Tonggu, Nothing was happening in the first few days after Pearl Harbor, and Chenault ordered Schilling to fly over Bangkok and get some pictures, with Ed Richter and Chris Christman to escort him. They climbed to 20,000 feet and flew 500 miles to get a look, seeing 26 ships unloading Japanese soldiers and cargo at the docks, and two airfields jammed with Japanese fighter planes and bombers. An awfully tempting sight, but they had been ordered not to attack, When Chenault saw the pictures they brought back, he was beside himself. If he had received the bombers he had asked for, he could have stopped the Japanese in their tracks, inflicting heavy damage on their air power. But he had nothing. He cabled Washington, asking them to send anything that could carry bombs. But they replied, Sorry, we've got our hands full. Chenault knew that these Jap forces now in Thailand would be able to rain destruction now on Rangoon and Singapore. Later that day, he received news that the powerful British fleet in Singapore had been practically wiped out within an hour's time. That was the heart of the Allied defense in that region.
3: The British wanted us all to go down to Rangoon, but Chenault and Chiang Kai-shek didn't want any part of that, but they did work out a deal where the 3rd Squadron went to Rangoon, and then a few days later, it was on the 18th, our two squadrons, 1st and 2nd, moved up to Kunming. And uh, they had bombed Kunming before. Kunming was bombed quite frequently. They used to kind of run it as a training mission for the Japanese.
0: On December 12th, he sent a squadron to Rangoon to help there and immediately sent two more squadrons and all his combat staff to the ancient walled city of Kunming, which the Japanese were now attacking. If he needed a landing strip, the Chinese were incredible in putting them together. The steep, rugged peaks of the Himalayas surrounded his ABG airfield three miles outside of Kunming. Here, at least, the Chinese had a good early warning system set up that could warn him of approaching Japanese planes. Chinese Colonel Wang Shu Ming, whom they called Tiger Wang, had set up an excellent system using Japanese captives who had formerly been communications officers before they had been shot down and captured. Now they were being put to good use and could provide the number of incoming planes their altitudes, and their destination. On their second day at Kunming, at 9.45 a.m., the phone which was connected to intelligence rang in Chennault's office, and it was Tiger Wang reporting that 10 Japanese bombers had crossed the Yunnan border at Laoke, headed northwest. They were twin-engine planes that had left Hanoi at 9.30, course northwest at 8,000 feet, and climbing. Objective? Kunming.
2: Every village in China had a uh, da-da-da-dit, uh, what you call them, CW. So if we moved into a place, if we moved into say like Hinyang, this, this would be Hinyang in the center. Then on the map we drive draw uh, concentric circles on out to 300 kilometers. So the villages, you know, they're not sophisticated. All they had to do was say, I hear something, or I see something, or whatever. And uh, so when they say whatever they saw or heard, you put a flag on that village. And pretty soon those flags start to line up. And then you knew they were coming in. It was very accurate. And uh, so when they get to the 180-kilometer circle, about which should give us a chance to get up to around... uh, uh, Eighteen thousand feet, which is our best altitude, it did be right there. It worked, perfect. And it also was used to uh, to uh, if you got lost, you could go down over a village. You didn't know where you were. You see a village down there, and you go down and you shoot a short burst over there with your gun. That information will go right back to your base. Well, you don't know where you are, but the base then knew where you were, and then he could give you a vector. Uh, heading, and you know, and bring you back. Simple deal, but it worked.
0: A few minutes later, word came from a spotter 180 miles away that the bombers had just flown past, headed for Kunming. A red canvas ball was raised to the top of the airstrips, warning mast, and the pilots grabbed their heavy suits and parachutes and ran for their planes. Chenault ordered Jack Newkirk with Crispin, Gilbright, and Ed Rector to intercept them. They took off and climbed to a bitter cold 15,000 feet, their goggles frosting up and headed east.
2: We had absolutely no experience and the only uh, anticipation that we had was what Chenault had told us about the Japanese planes and the Japanese pilots. When they told us the scramble that first time, it was a very nervous situation.
0: This was it for Chenault. All his preparations, his early warning system, the training he had worked for months to instill into his pilots, it was all coming due and payable now. His radio crackled. Shark Fin blue calling base. Shark Fin blue calling base. That was the code for AVG, and blue was Newkirk's patrol. Bandit sighted 60 miles east. We're attacking. Chennault immediately ordered 16 more planes, led by Sandy Sandel, into the sky to cut off any Japanese bombers trying to retreat. But Newkirk's flight had hesitated, apparently making doubly sure they weren't attacking friendlies. The Japanese were able to drop their bombs, dive to get speed, and turn back toward Indochina. Sandel's patrol spotted those bombers flying low, headed east. The Flying Tiger pilots were keyed up, and forgot everything they'd been trained to do. They dived in rat race formation, every pilot picking his own target, and forgot teamwork. Some were trying 90-degree deflection shots. Others were dogfighting World War I style. Their bullets sprayed all over the sky, nearly missing each other multiple times. When Newkirk's group reached the bombers, Ed Rector, remembering his training, followed procedure and dived and turned one of those bombers into a flying bonfire. But he had made a serious error in the process, forgetting what Chennault had taught to keep his gun burst short, way under 8 seconds, an error that would come back to bite him later. Then he remembered the training that told him they should attack head-on, taking advantage of the P-40's heavy armor. So he did, and at 800 yards and closing fast ahead on one bomber, he pulled the trigger. But only one of his four 50 caliber guns fired, and his cannons weren't working at all. He pulled back on the stick and raced over the top of the bomber, realizing he had forgotten to recharge his guns. This was like a football team facing its first sporting match of the season, forgetting training initially, making blunders full of jitters, until the sanity sets back in. And sanity had to come quick here. The gunners and the Japanese bombers were just as eager to take down these American fighter planes as the Americans were to shoot them. After passing over the bomber the first time, Ed Rector pumped his charger three times and made a second head on attack, only to find his guns were totally frozen. Again, he swerved quickly above his target and realized with anger what he had done wrong. Firing that first long eight-second burst had caused his guns to stick, and there was nothing he could do but turn and hit for home. Sandell's group, however, despite their undisciplined attack, was able to down two bombers before leaving. When they reached the field at Kunming, victory rolling their way in. The pilots and Chenault were glad they had success, but the celebration was short. Ed Rector was still missing. In the training room, Chenault, who had been listening to the whole thing over the radio, gave them a play-by-play on where they'd gone wrong and let them know in no uncertain terms that they should have had all ten bombers down. When Rector showed up an hour later, victory was complete. He had made a navigation error and flown 200 miles off course, but he made it. The men had downed three that day and decided to divide the $1,500 reward that was promised by Chiang Kai-shek among the men involved. That was, of course, if and when it ever showed up. What the men didn't find out until years later was that only one of those ten bombers ever made it back to the base in Hanoi. The others were so badly shot up that they had to ditch them. This first action on this day had a huge effect on both the Chinese and the Japanese. The Chinese, upon hearing that a Japanese bomber squadron had been attacked by American pilots and that three bombers were downed, were ecstatic. A new surge of hope spread like wildfire across China. The Japanese, after seeing only one bomber return to the base at Hanoi out of the ten that left, had to face the fact that they were now facing a deadly enemy in the air at least over Kunming, and no more bombing raids were sent in that direction. Join us next week for the exciting conclusion of the Flying Tigers, their victory over Rangoon, the disbanding of the AVG and the formation of the official Air Force group, the fighting at Quailin and Saline, one-on-one dogfights between P-40s and Zeros, and much more. And remember to take a minute, Apple listeners, and send us a kind review at Apple Podcasts. And all of you, please share us with your friends at Facebook and Twitter, and at work. Having you and others subscribe to our shows is a big deal. Many listeners never subscribe. In fact, about 30% of you. Remember, subscribing is not only free, but it's easy. And when you're subscribed, wherever you go to Apple Podcasts, or Player.fm, or CastBox.fm, or Stitcher.com, or any one of a hundred others, you get a reminder every time we post a new episode. So subscribe to all four of our shows, and you'll always have a story. Here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, or at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, or 1001 Stories for the Road, or 1001 Radio Days. And please do support our sponsors, like Progressive Auto Insurance, These guys are vital to keeping us going, along with all of you that provide monthly support at Patreon. Thank you. Oh, and this. Remember when we had an Apple app? We had to leave that app behind when we transferred our hosting services, and that was a very hard decision, but a good one as it turned out, because it gave us access to dynamic ad insertion. Well, we're getting a new app. It's a subscription app, and it'll give you ad-free access to all our episodes. All four networks and all at one place. I'll keep you posted on that. That's it for this week. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back soon.
3: The Japanese could be beaten. The Japanese were not invincible after all. No one else, British, Dutch, Americans, had beaten the Japanese on land, sea in the air. Only the AVG had done this. The AVG supplied the first victories against the Japanese in the war in the Pacific.